Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you confused about bevel angles for chisels and plane irons? Do you have a handsaw with a kink in it that needs to be fixed? Would you like to start making moldings with hand planes? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 17 of the show for January 10th, 2018. Actually, that's a typo. Today's actually January 12th, 2018. I usually try to, to record and release these episodes on Wednesdays, but I'm a couple days late this week. It's just been kind of crazy around here. So, But be, uh, before I start today's show, just want to take a minute to thank all the folks who support the show over on Patreon, including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Chris Jacquet, Lawrence Polinski, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delorier, Jens Rosendahl, Matt McGrain, Jared Tolan, Chris Barnes, and thanks to two new patrons this week, Christopher Bush and Lance Stutchel. Thank you, everyone, for your generous support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as, as my special way of saying thanks. So I cannot believe it is already 2018. Actually, it's already two weeks into 2018. This is absolutely nuts how fast the uh, the time has been going. But I did finally get some uh, some shop time over the last few weeks, even though it has been about 10 degrees uh, here uh, until till recently. The last couple of days have actually been pretty mild, but uh, up until today, it has been just downright nasty cold here, uh, you know, hovering right around 10 degrees and the shop pretty much stays at that temperature all day. And that's about minus 12 for uh, those folks uh, not in the U.S., but, uh, yeah, I got some time in the shop to, to finish up some saws that I started last year. I'm almost done with them now. Um, I've also been, of course, continuing work on the cabin. Um, we did just get our electrical inspection to pass last week. That was awesome. I didn't, uh, passed on the first try. I didn't have to make any corrections on it. So that's awesome. Uh, also just recently in the last day or so got our plumbing inspection passed for the plumbing rough in. So that is awesome as well. That means that as soon as I finish building our hickory staircase, which I hopefully will be starting in the next week or so, uh, we should be able to get our framing inspection and start closing up, insulating and closing up all the walls on the, uh, the inside of the house. So that'll be, that'll be awesome. The goal is to, uh, be in this new cabin this year. So, uh, it's been a, a long, hard road. We started construction of this thing in about March, April timeframe, 2016. And, uh, you know, if you've been reading the blog or listening to the podcast or for any length of time, you probably already know everything that happened and, and the situation that we got put in by our contractor. So, uh, yeah, we, you know, I think we're doing pretty good. We're, uh, we've pretty much been doing all the work ourselves since, uh, pretty much December ish of last year, December, January of last year, other than putting the roof on, uh, we've pretty much done everything else ourselves. So it, uh, it's been good. We've been moving right along and, uh, the goal is to, to get in it this year. So that, that'll be a, a great thing if we can do that. 
So I've got no feedback this week, but if you do have feedback on a, on a previous podcast, feel free to send that in. The easiest way is to just record a voice note on your phone. You, know, you can, if you're listening to the podcast uh, on your phone and you know, something comes up and I, I say something or your listener has a question and, uh, and you think of something right away that might help with that question or something that I didn't mention, you know, feel free, pause that pod, pause the podcast and record a voice message, uh, a voice note on your phone and send it to me, you know, after you, after you listen to the rest of the podcast and, uh, you know, I can, uh, I can put that on the, uh, on the show, you know, cause of course I don't have all the answers. So, you know, or, and, uh, and I'm not always right. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong and, uh, add your two cents, you know, cause there's ten, tons of ways to skin the cat as they, uh, as they say. So feel free to uh, send in your feedback on, uh, on any previous questions or previous episodes. But with that, we'll get right into this week's listener questions. So our first question comes from Bill Elliott, and he says, I'm looking, I'm looking for optimum strategies on sharpening angles for, for chisels, depending upon the nature of their use. For example, would pairing chisels be perhaps at 25 degrees, normal bench chisels perhaps 30, mortise chisels perhaps 35? What are your thoughts? So I think I'm going to disappoint you a little bit, Bill, because um, I don't get that that crazy detailed about my sharpening regimen. Most of the time, I don't really know what the angles are. Um, as long as the tool holds an edge um, and doesn't chip or fold over, um, you know, and as long as that edge is fairly durable and cuts cleanly, I go with whatever angle the uh, the tool is currently ground at. Now, if I am using uh, a honing guide, which I will do on occasion, not too often, but uh, sometimes, you know, if I'm if I'm honing a secondary bevel that is ground that is honed at an angle that is higher than the angle that the the bevel is ground at then i will use a honing guide Um, because it's just easier to to be repeatable um, honing a secondary bevel when you do that Um, but i i hone in several different ways so it sometimes what i will do is to just grind a primary uh, grind the primary bevel at a certain angle um, on my grinder, usually somewhere around 30 degrees and hone freehand using the hollow in that, in that grind to help me register the tool on the stone. So I really don't know what the, what the angle is. It might be 28, 29, 30, 31, somewhere around there. Um, but for the most part, with very few exceptions, I hone all my tools to a single angle and that is somewhere right around 30 degrees. Whether it's chisels, plain irons, doesn't matter. Everything, for the most part, is honed somewhere around 30 degrees. With two notable exceptions. For my mortise chisel, I usually up that angle closer to 35 degrees so that I have a little bit more durability behind that edge because I'm pounding that thing pretty good. So I will raise the bevel angle a little bit on mortising chisels to somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 degrees. And again, I'm not measuring it super accurately. And block planes, bevel up type planes, I will typically try to control the angle of. Um, the problem with, with block planes and, and bevel up angle planes is that the angle of the bevel dictates the angle um, of the cut, whereas most of my planes are beveled down so that the angle of the bed or the frog dictates the dictates the angle of the cut with a bevel up iron the bed angle actually dictates the angle of the cut so I try to control that a little little better 
And in a block plane, in my block plane, I have uh, the Lee Nielsen low angle. I think it's a 60 and a half or whatever the number is. Um, it's a low angle. They're, they're standard adjustable mouth, low angle block plane. Um, that the, the whole point that I use that tool for is that low angle. Um, so I try to maintain that blade at around 25 degrees because again, I want the lower angle. So by maintaining that blade at 25 degrees, I think the bed angle on that plane is somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 degrees. That gives me about a 37 degree angle of attack. So, you know, if I'm beveling off some end grain or something like that, um, it, it really doesn't matter. You know, I've planed end grain and the, the plane I use on a shooting board is my, my regular old Jack plane, um, you know, with a sharp iron and that's a 45 degree angle of attack. So it really doesn't matter, um, what the angle of attack is, but since that blade came ground at 25 degrees, I pretty much just keep it at 25 degrees in that block plane. Um, and I haven't found any problems with that. So I haven't felt a need to change the angle of it, but for the most part, other than that, um, that block plane blade that I've just left at the 25 degree factory grind and my mortise chisels, which I hone at about 35 degrees, um, all my other chisels and plane irons pretty much just get honed at 30 degrees or roughly 30 degrees. Again, I'm not that, uh, that picky or that accurate about the angles, but it is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 degrees. And by keeping them all pretty much the same, um, it just allows me to not have to worry about it. You know, remembering what angle this tool was set up at and what angle that tool was set up at. Um, cause it can get to be kind of a pain in the butt to, to try and keep track of all that. So to really simplify things, I really recommend just, you know, picking an angle that works for, for everything for the most part, and just sticking with that one angle for, for everything. Um, you know, my, I can pair with a 30 degree chisel, I can chop with a 30 degree chisel and everything works just fine. So, uh, I stick with something right around the neighborhood of 30 degrees. Our second question comes from Matt Aubin. Matt says, I have a question about a handsaw that I have. I recently got into working more with hand tools, but at the moment, my tools aren't in the best of shape. I'd like to start getting them back into working order. I have a distant crosscut saw with a kink in the middle of the blade. How would you suggest that I straighten it out? So I would, I would certainly suggest practicing. Um, if this is a saw that you want to use um, regularly, if it's, especially if it has any sentimental value, if it was inherited from a father or grandfather or something like that, you may want to practice this on another saw first. But there, there are a few ways that I get kinks out of saws. So, and, and really I start with the least intrusive to, and, and kind of increase the, uh, the pressure, shall we say, um, as I progress through. So the first thing I will try to do, if it's just a gentle bend and not an actual kink. So what, what I want you to do is run your hand down the length of the saw, you know, sight down the length of the saw and you'll see which way it bends in, but run your hand down the sides of the saw blade and see if you can actually feel a kink. And what I mean by kink is, is an actual sharp bend or a, a little hump or a nub or a bump or something. We need to determine first if it's just a gentle bend along the length of the saw, or is it an actual kink where the, the blade itself, the steel has gotten stretched. 
if it's just a gentle bend and you can't feel an actual bump or bend or crease of some kind in the blade, um, I would start just by trying to bend the saw back the other way. So put your thumbs right around the center of where the, or, or your knee works for a longer saw. Just put kind of bend the saw over your kneecap. Um, and, and just kind of try and gently bend it back the other way. And you can be pretty forceful with this bending. Um, you know, you can, with a, with a properly tensioned saw, you can almost bend that thing in a full loop and it should spring back straight. Um, so I would first start with that. If it's, if it's just a gentle bend and you can't feel an actual kink or crease in the saw, start by just trying to unbend it the other direction. And that might work. Um, again, if you if you put your kneecap or your thumbs in behind the the area where the saw needs to be bent behind the high spot and kind of push as you're bending uh, against that high spot, that oftentimes will work good enough, and you can get that the that bend mostly out of that saw that way. And I've even done this where with saws that have multiple bends. Um, you know, sometimes they're close to the tooth line. Sometimes they're closer to the back. You just kind of have to gently work your way down the saw, bend a little sight down the saw, bend a little more sight down the saw, and just keep working different areas until everything kind of straightens itself out. And it's going to take some practice. It's, it's really an art, um, to kind of, of learn to, to see where the bends actually are and, and where to actually work that saw, um, if you have an actual crease, things get a little bit hairier. So the first thing that I would suggest before you start pulling out a hammer, if you have, um, if you actually have a crease in the saw is to try and put the, the saw in a, in a vice. If you have, um, a twin screw vice, that's ideal because you can put the saw blade down between the jaws of the, the vice and kind of hold it, clamp the, um, clamp the vise tightly closed, and then kind of try to bend the saw back the other way, just a little bit gently. Don't, you don't want to overdo it because you don't want to put a crease in the other direction and see if that helps at all. Um, if it does, you might be able to get away with just using it that way. Try to sharpen the saw, try to use it and, and see what happens. Um, I, I recommend not taking a hammer to a saw only, only as a last resort because, um, you can do some pretty serious damage to a saw if you start beating on it. If you, none of those things work, if, if bending it back in the opposite direction and, and putting pressure with your thumbs or your kneecap doesn't really work to get the bend out, putting it in a vise and gently bending in the opposite direction and trying to work the kink out, um, if that doesn't work, then what you probably have is a saw that has an actual crease and, and what has happened is the steel, the metal has stretched on the side on, on the convex side of the, or the humped side of the, the kink. And it has compressed slightly on the concave side uh, of the, of the kink. And that might need to be hammered out. Um, you don't need an anvil to do this. In fact, I, I, I used to use the anvil on the back of my machinist vice, um, when we moved out of New Jersey a few years ago, I actually left the machinist vice mounted to the workbench in the garage at the house. I didn't take it with me. So these days what I use is just a, a piece of hardwood. If you have uh, a piece of maple, um, 
like a, a, a piece of a stump would work. What you need is basically like a, a three inch square piece of end grain. If you can get like a piece of 12 quarter or 16 quarter, something hard, um, like Oak or maple cherry would probably work just fine. Um, something fairly hard and that end grain cut needs to be flat. Ideally you want it flat. Uh, if it's a little bit concave, that's fine too. You just don't want a, a, the end grain cut to be convex. So if you got a piece of 12 quarter maple, take that and, and cut it off good and square on the end, nice and smooth. And essentially what you have is a, a small wooden anvil. You can put that in a hand screw and clamp that to the top of your workbench over a leg because you're going to use that piece of maple or that, that little wooden anvil. And that's what you're going to use to hammer the saw on. Um, you can clamp that hand screw down to your bench. So you want the end grain facing up in the hand screw, clamp the hand screw down to your bench just so it doesn't move. And you're going to take a small hammer. Um, I would say don't go any, any bigger than, you know, like a 16 ounce, 16 to 20 ounce hammer. You can use a ball peen hammer. You can use a, um, like, like a, a regular claw hammer will work just fine. What's important is that the face of that hammer is not perfectly flat. You want it to be slightly domed. And the reason for that is that if you use a perfectly flat faced hammer, the edges of the hammer could leave hammer marks in the saw blade. And you don't want that when you, when you tap on the saw blade, you want those, um, you want that face of that hammer to be slightly domed or slightly rounded so that you're getting a, a nice soft effect and you're not leaving deep hammer marks in the blade itself. So in order to hammer out that crease, what I do, and I'm not saying this is the only way or even the right way to do it. There are a lot of different ways you can hammer out a, a saw, but what I do is to take the blade over to the, the anvil or your wooden block. And I want you to put the, concave side of the crease down against the wooden anvil and you're going to bend the blade a little bit. So I'm trying to figure out a way I can describe this without a video. So essentially if you were to take a saw blade and put it on a table, put the toe of the blade flat on the tabletop and bend the handle of the blade up. So you're putting a, a curve in the blade, right? So that's essentially what I want you to do on the anvil. I want you to put the kink of the blade on that little wooden anvil and bend it in the, in the direction opposite of the kink so that essentially what you're doing is you're stretching the side of the steel that has been made concave. And you're going to make a few light hammer taps right on the area where the kink is just on the kink. What you're trying to do is flatten out that crease. So in order to do that, by putting a little bit of bend in the saw blade, you're, you're allowing the blade to stretch on the concave side and the hammer taps are going to then set that bend. So you're not hitting hard. I mean, just basically the weight of the hammer, um, is probably enough. And you're going to do that maybe you know, just do it maybe a dozen times right on where the crease is and then check the saw. You may have to work the saw in a few different places if it's a, you know, depending on how it, it, it bent and you are going to have to move the saw around on your little wooden anvil in order to 
be able to hammer all of the area of the crease that needs to come out. But you're going to, I want you to take your time. Don't rush through it and don't by any means beat on the saw blade really hard. It's, it's really just light hammer taps, um, with the weight of the hammer. And I may do a video on this at some point because I get asked this question quite a lot and it's really hard to describe the process. Um, so it's much, it would be much easier for me to, uh, to show the process and, I'm hoping to get into some videos again this year on YouTube. So I'll, I'll try and make that one of the first ones that I do um, because it, it can be one of those things that is not, it, it's sort of intuitive, but at the same time, it's, it's just as much art as it is science, just really getting a feel for how hard to tap the saw and where to tap the saw um, and how often to tap the saw. So um, try that out and see if it works again, just be real gentle with it. Some saws, you won't be able to get the entire crease out. You still may be left with a little bit of a bend, but you should be able to make a good improvement. Um, you know, I'll explain that to my customers sometimes when they send me saws that are kinked that, you know, I may not be able to get the whole thing out because in my opinion, I would rather stop short of getting the whole kink out and still have a functional saw than hit that saw one too many times or, or, or too hard and end up ruining the, the blade and, and turn it in into a, a floppy noodle. Um, so just keep an eye on it as you go um, and make sure that you're not taking attention out of the saw and it's not getting too floppy. Um, and just try and work on the, the backside of the crease and, and just be gentle. Use the weight of the hammer and basically no more than that. Um, and give it a try and let me know how it turns out. Um, and again, I'll, I'll try to do a video on this in the, in the next couple of months. Um, cause it is one of those things that I get asked quite frequently. And it is, it is one of those things that's not so easy to describe how to do without, uh, without a video. So, so our last question comes from Bill Elliott again, getting low on questions here, guys, you just got to start sending them in. Um, he says, I'm cutting through mortises through a five inch leg for a workbench. Which strategy would you use? Chisel the mortise entirely, drill the waste out with a brace and bit first, and then clean up the sides. Concerned about drilling straight through. At a depth of five inches, it would seem risky to drill for fear of drilling not on a straight line. I could use a drill press, I suppose, but the leg is big and handling on a drill press is problematic. So when you get into mortises that are much bigger than a half to um, maybe nine sixteenths or five eighths of an inch, um, you're starting to get into some mortises that are awfully big and awful difficult to chop just with a chisel. Um, once you start getting into one inch mortises and, and wider than that for things like workbench legs, you're really approaching timber framing more than you are um, you know, furniture making type woodworking. Um, and the processes are quite different between timber framing and, and furniture making, you know, for furniture making the historical practice is you chop the mortise with a chisel. Um, yeah, you know, you can drill it out and chop it as well, but most of the books that I've read, um, the historical books really focus on chopping the mortise with a chisel. And that that's pretty much how I always do it is just to chop the mortise with a chisel. When I start to get into mortises any bigger than about a half an inch, I start to look more to the timber framing trades, the post and beam type construction. They're not chopping those mortises. They have tools called chain drills um, or, or mortise drills 
um, post-mortisers, you know, they go by a lot of different names. Essentially, they're drills that mount to the top of the post to drill out the majority of the waste, good, nice, and perpendicular and straight, and then they clean that mortise up with a chisel. And I really think that's the best way to do it for workbench leg as well. Um, I showed how I did it in my workbench building podcast series, um, which is still on YouTube. Um, and I just use a brace and bit. Those mortises were not very deep. They were only maybe um, an inch and a half or so, inch and a half, two inches maybe. Um, so I just, you know, drilled plumb and chopped out the waste. For what you're talking about, a through mortise, however, I wouldn't try to drill the whole thing in one shot. I would drill halfway through from one side and halfway through from the other side. The trick to this is to make sure you have one good flat face on that leg and then two faces square to um to that to that good flat face as well even really just one but um if you can get two faces square that's even better you're going to lay out the mortise on the primary face where the tenon is going to enter and you're going to do it with a knife and then what i want you to do is use that knife and your square and transfer the location of that mortise around to the opposite face where the mortise is going to come through. Then you're going to want to work from both sides. So you're going to drill out, again, about halfway through, drill the waste from one side, and then about halfway through, then, then flip your, your leg stock over and drill the rest of the way through from there. What that does is that any inconsistency or, or misalignment of your drilling is going to be buried in the middle of the joint instead of at the end. So you don't have to worry about drilling too perfectly straight. You you drill from both sides and then you clean up the mortise from both sides and you have scribe lines and guidelines for that mortise on both faces that you can you can meet in the middle. And again, that way any inconsistency, any fixing of the mortise that you have to do if things didn't line up quite right, is hidden in the middle of the joint where you're not going to see it. Um, even if you have to undercut the, the center of the joint slightly, as long as you respect those layout lines on both faces of your leg stock, you should have a, a good fit of your tenon when it comes through. Um, and it should look good and it should close up nice. Um, and you should be in good shape. So that's the way that I would do it. I would, I would lay out the, the location of that mortise on both faces of the leg stock drill from both sides and then chop in towards the center from both sides so that you can respect the layout lines on both faces of the leg stock um, and bury any inconsistency or, or any problem uh, in the middle of the joint where it won't be seen after assembly. So that's going to do it for the questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. Leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. Or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. Uh, and I am getting short on questions, so start sending them in so that we have uh, some good content for uh, future shows. So today's main topic is getting started with molding planes. So you, you, you started your woodworking, you built a couple of projects. They're, you know, nice square things with uh, 
maybe some basic bevels or, you know, uh, minor decorative elements or roundovers that you've done with a block plane, but you want to embellish them a little bit more. Now, you know, you're comfortable with the basic stuff and you're looking to add a little bit more flair. So you've been looking at molding planes, but the choices and the options and the profiles are enough to, to make your head explode when you start looking into these things. So where do we get started? So that's what I want to talk about today. So my first tip is going to be for you to go to Matt Big, Matt Bickford's website. Matt Bickford is uh, one of several uh, makers of new molding planes, um, some of the, the nicest molding planes on the market today. Um, I want you to go to his website and, and read his FAQ. Um, and I'll put a link for his website in the show notes. But his his, uh, his website is msbickford.com. Um, and you can go there and read the FAQ on his website. And also click on the link on his website for his blog and read through the stuff on his blog. Matt has written a book uh, on using hollows and rounds, using molding planes, um, which I also recommend you get if you're really serious about getting into this. Um, and he has done a lot of research on it and he has really mastered the art of teaching people how to use molding planes. So if you can look at the stuff that he's written and look at his book, um, you'll really learn a lot from him. So that's where I would recommend that you start. Um, and if you can take a class with him, he does classes all the time. Um, he's, he's, based out of Connecticut. Um, and, but he travels to do classes on making moldings with hollows and rounds and molding planes all the time. And he brings planes that he has made, um, you know, to use for these classes. So the planes are, you know, sharp, they're tuned up well, they work great. Um, and you're going to have a really great experience. So if you can take a class with him, um, do that as well. And that's really going to get you jump started on your way to making moldings with planes. And there are other makers of new molding planes as well. I don't want to sell other people short. Um, you know, Matt, I've known Matt for, for quite a number of years and he's always the first person that comes to mind, but you know, there are others as well. Old street tool is still making, uh, molding planes. Um, and a couple other, uh, folks that I follow on Instagram that make really nice molding planes, red rose reproductions and Jeremiah wilding, uh, also, a couple of uh, other options for um, for commercial molding planes. Um, they're pricey. I, I will say that if you're going to go um, and start looking at some of these planes, that you know they're on par with a new Leon Nielsen plane or or uh, you know a new Japanese plane or something like that. So you know you're not going to find brand new planes for for what you will find old ones for. But you can be assured by buying a new molding plane from one of these folks that it's going to be sharp and work exactly as it should from the day it arrives um, in your mailbox. So um, it's they're certainly worth taking a look at. I mean, I'm waiting for the day when uh, I have enough put aside, extra put aside, that I can uh, order a uh, a half set of hollows and rounds from uh, from Matt to replace my, uh, my antique ones. So, uh, you know, even, even though I know how to tune them up and use them, I, I still would like to have a, a set of new ones. So, uh, certainly something to look into, but let's talk about the different types of molding planes, um, and, and where to get started. 
Um, so you may hear two different things mentioned when you, when you get start getting into molding planes, articles and books might reference simple molding planes and compact complex molding planes. Um, the difference between the two is actually pretty, pretty basic. Simple molding planes are molding planes that make a, uh, a single curve essentially. They, and whereas a complex molding plane makes a shape that contains a combination of curves or a combination of elements. Um, so for the most part, simple molding planes are planes like hollows and rounds. They are designed to make one single profile and that's all that they do. Now I should back up for a second. So you can make a lot of, you can make a lot of different infinite profiles actually with a set of hollows and rounds. But when I say that a hollow hollows and rounds are simple molding planes, what I, what I mean is they have a single curve. They have a single element in their design a single hollow curve or a single round curve. Complex molding planes, on the other hand, make complex profiles, profiles with more than one element. For example, um, an OG plane has a, a fillet and an S-curve. That S-curve has a concave and a convex. So you have three different elements to that profile, all made by a single plane. That is what would be considered a complex molding plane because it's, it's a plane that has multiple elements in its profile. Hollows and rounds are definitely the easiest place to start. So I would recommend you start with hollows and rounds. They are more versatile and I'm one to try to downplay the versatility of tools because I know in a lot of cases when tools become more versatile, they become less masterful at other tasks. Hollows and rounds, however, are not one of those tools. They're a tool where their versatility is what really sets them apart and makes them shine. Um, with a, just a few hollows and rounds, pairs of hollows and rounds, you can make virtually an unlimited number of different molding profiles just by combining the different curves from different pairs of hollows and rounds. And what do I mean by a pair? Well, Hollows and rounds typically are sold as a pair of planes, one hollow and one round. The hollow makes the hollow has a concave sole, but cuts a convex arc in the piece of wood. Because obviously the plane cuts its negative. The round has a convex sole, but it cuts a concave profile. So the two planes, the hollow and the round, are typically made to match each other in curvature. The hollow makes the same radius as the round of the same size. The benefit of that is uh, of these simpler molding planes, the hollows and rounds, again, I mentioned they're, they're more versatile first off because you can make virtually an unlimited number of profiles with just a few planes. They're also easier to tune and sharpen. So all you have to worry about when you're sharpening hollows and rounds or grinding the irons is a single curve. You don't have curves that change direction. You don't have to worry about fillets or quirks or any of these other little oddities added into the profile of that iron, making the iron much more difficult to grind, much more difficult to sharpen. Um, hollows and rounds can practically be sharpened like any other plain, flat plane blade um, or gouge. 
Um, you know, the, the hollows can be flattened on a, sh- on a flat stone and the rounds, all you really need is a, is a slip stone or two or, or a couple dowels with some sandpaper. Um, and they're quite easy to sharpen. Um, the one downside of hollows and rounds is that if you have to make multiple lengths of molding, it can be a challenge to make those profiles match. So where would this be a problem? Let's say you're making a room full of baseboard molding and you you need a piece of baseboard molding that's eight feet and another one that's six feet and they're going to be mitered at the corner. Well, unless you have a a bench that's 16 feet long, it's unlikely that you're going to be planing moldings that are six feet, 16 feet long. So you would have to make two pieces of molding in that case. Um, I had to do something similar when I did my picture frame, my painting frame, um, in the YouTube video. If you, and if you check that video out, you'll see that how I had to make two separate pieces of molding because of the size of the frame. I wasn't able to do a single long piece of molding. Um, and because hollows and rounds don't cut a predetermined profile, but can be used to make just about any profile you want, it can be a challenge to make two separate pieces of molding with exactly the same profile like you would get you know, with a router bit. And that becomes a problem when you want to take those two separate pieces of molding and miter them together at a corner. So you need to finagle that miter and, and finesse that fit a little bit more, maybe carve it a little bit to match when you make that miter. Whereas with a, a molding plane like, like an OG plane or something like that that makes that single profile, because that's more like a router bit that just makes that one complex profile, it's a little bit easier to make matching, separate matching sticks of molding. Um, but again, you know, you run the risk of, not, of having that profile be harder to sharpen and harder to grind and harder to tune up that plane, etc. Um, in most cases, though, if you're just making moldings for furniture size objects, you really shouldn't need to make one more than one stick of molding because most pieces of furniture don't require moldings that are much longer than eight to 10 feet. And most people can fairly easily make an eight to 10 foot length of molding on their regular workbench um, with hollows and rounds. So if you can make an eight to 10 foot piece of, of molding, that should be enough to fit most pieces of furniture and, and to make the miters. And that way you'll be assured that when you make those miters, uh, the profile will match because it's all coming out of a single stick of molding. In terms of what to get when you're looking for hollows and rounds, I talked earlier about wanting a half set from Matt Bickford. I currently have a half set of uh, antique planes. Now a half set of hollows and rounds consists of 18 planes. They are typically numbered stamped on the heel and that number has to do with the size of the iron and the radius of the um, of the profile that it cuts. I'm going to tell you to ignore that number on the back because the, the number, if you're just getting started, that number is not going to do anything but confuse you. Just know that a half set of hollows and rounds consists of the evenly numbered planes. Okay, they would be numbered one Planes would would have been numbered 1 through 18. All 36 planes 
hollow and round in number one through hollow and round in number 18 would would make up a full set of hollows and rounds. A half set would be either the odd numbers or the even numbers. Most commonly, the half set would be the even numbers. So number two through number 18 is what you would what you would get in a half set. So it's a, a set of 18 planes. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18 would be the sizes. And you would have 18 planes in that half set. That's a lot of planes, number one. Number two, some of those sizes, if you're just planning to make furniture, you may never need, ever. Size 16, size 18 planes, those are really big, wide profiles. And they're usually going to be used for making um, architectural size moldings. Or if you're doing period reproductions, you might use them to make cornice moldings on large secretaries um, and, and things of that nature. Large secretaries, large bookcases, where you see these old period pieces with really large cove moldings and, and things like that as part of... Um, you know, as part of the crown molding in the in the uh, in those pieces. But if you're not making those big cornices on those big pieces of furniture, and you're not doing architectural moldings, chances are you're not going to use planes with irons that are much bigger than three quarters of an inch or so, because furniture moldings are typically fairly small. So instead, I would recommend just starting with a few pairs of smaller planes. Start with something about a half inch wide, you know, a set of planes with irons that are about a half inch wide, um, and see what you can do with just those two planes and a rabbit plane. Those, those are the three planes that you're going to need to get started. One pair of hollows and rounds and a rabbit plane. And if you bought Matt Bickford's book, go through some of the exercises in there and just play with some different profiles and see what you can do with those two planes and the rabbit plane. And I think you'll be amazed at what you can do. As the need arises, you can add different sizes to your set by adding different sizes of hollows and rounds. Um, and that will allow you to do more shapes. So now you can do smaller profiles. You can do bigger profiles depending on the sizes of the planes that you get. And it's going to slow, slowly introduce you into how these planes work. Um, and you'll see as you make moldings and as you make pieces how the sizes of the plane relate to the size of the molding and how you can use the size of the plane you have to design the molding that you need for the piece of furniture that you're making. And if the plane you have happens to be too big and you know, the curves that you get out of that, um, out of that plane make moldings that look too big for your piece of furniture, well then maybe you might want to get a couple of smaller planes uh, to make some smaller moldings, but just start with something that's at, you know anywhere from about three eighths to a half inch wide, and see what you can make with those. Um, getting back to the numbers on the back of the plane, I mentioned before to ignore the numbers and not worry about those. Even most of today's modern makers are stamping their planes with numbers because that's the historical way that it was done. The planes were stamped number one through number eighteen. Those numbers kind of meant something when molding planes were first being stamped and standardized. The problem is the numbering system itself was never really standardized. So if you look at a lot of old English planes, what you'll find is that most of the time that number on the back 
relates to the size of the iron, the width of the iron in sixteenths of an inch. So a number two is two sixteenths or an eighth of an inch. A number eight is eight sixteenths or a half an inch. So the problem is if you go into buying old molding planes thinking that if you just buy a number eight, it's going to be half inch, you're going to find that that's not always the case, especially when you start looking at American molding planes, American made molding planes. Um, for example, I have a, a Greenfield, either Greenfield or, or, uh, or Auburn. I forget what the, uh, which one it is, but I have a plane that's stamped number eight. It's not a half inch. I believe it's actually three eighths of an inch instead of a half inch. So when you think about it, that number doesn't really correlate to much of anything. It doesn't mean anything. My number four is not four sixteenths or a quarter of an inch. Um, it's actually three eighths. Yeah. So that's what it is. My number two is a quarter of an inch, not an eighth of an inch. My number fours are three eighths of an inch, not a quarter of an inch. My number eights are, I don't know. They're, they're not a half inch. Let's just put it that way. Uh, my sixes are a half inch. My eights are five eighths of an inch, right? So, um, and that just happens to be because the planes I have are, are Greenfield tool and Auburn tool. And that's the numbering system that those two companies used. They started at, you know, the number two plane being uh, a quarter of an inch and that just screwed everything up. The other problem you run into if you're focusing on numbers is when you get up to a certain point, the, it changed, the scale changed. Sometimes it changed at the number uh, 14. Sometimes it changed at the number 16. So sometimes it'll be sixteenths of an sixteenths of an inch until you get to say the number 12 plane, the number 12 plane at 12 sixteenths would be three quarters of an inch wide. Then when you go to the number 14, well, that should be seven eighths of an inch wide, but it's not. Some makers would jump up and make that plane a, an, a full inch wide which gets off that whole sixteenths of an inch scale again. And, and an 18, you know, a 16 is not one inch wide. It might be an inch and a quarter wide. So the numbers stamped on the back can be very confusing. And some makers had no rhyme or reason whatsoever. Ohio tool just numbered their planes one through nine. And that was it. Um, the, the number had absolutely nothing to do with the size of the iron, unless you were cross-referencing it to an Ohio tool company, hollow and round chart. So, what I suggest is to ignore the numbers that are stamped on the back of the plane itself and instead focus on the width of the iron. The, the nature of the geometry of hollows and rounds means that the iron itself, that the iron, the radius of the iron creates a 60 degree arc. So if you were to draw a circle of a given diameter, let's say a one inch diameter circle, and you were to bisect that not bisect it, but divide that circle up into pie shaped wedges, six pie shaped wedges. Each of those pie shaped wedges would be a 60 degrees, uh, a 60 degree, uh, uh, arc, right? That's essentially the radius or the arc of a hollow and round. The benefit of that is that when you go with that 60 degree arc, the radius is the same as the width straight across the iron. So if you have an iron that is a half inch wide in a hollow and round, 
The nature of the 60 degree arc means that it creates a half inch radius. That makes things really easy because now you know if you need a three quarter inch radius, you look for a plane with a three quarter inch wide iron. Forget the number on the back, just make sure the width of the iron is three quarters of an inch. And you can shape it um, and make sure that it has that three quarter inch radius because that's what it should have. The other benefit of that is now you don't have to worry about making sure that the makers in your set of hollows and rounds, if you're buying old ones, all match. You don't have to make sure that your number eight hollow and your number eight round are from are both from the same plane maker. You can buy a number eight hollow from one and a number, you know, a three quarter inch, I should say, hollow from one and a three quarter inch round from another. One of them might have a number eight on the back. The other one might have a number six on the back. However, both of those irons are three quarters of an inch wide, so they should be tuned to match because they should both be cutting a three quarter inch radius if they both have three quarter inch irons. So focus on the width of the iron. Forget about the numbers on the back. Um, and again, add pairs as you go. I mentioned this before. Start with something around a half inch or so, and as you need them, um, go ahead and add pairs. And you'll find that in the end, you may only need two or three pairs to make every molding profile that you'll ever need to make as a, as a furniture maker. So um, you can get some hollows and rounds fairly inexpensively that way, or it's a good way to buy them from makers like, like Matt or Red Rose or, or Jeremiah um, because you can just buy pairs instead of buying a full half set. Now, complex molding planes. Let's talk about those. We talked about a little bit about them earlier. They are planes that make a single profile. So hollows and rounds can make a variety of different profiles due to the nature that they're just a single curve. Complex molding planes are the router bits of the molding plane world. They make a single profile. You get an OG router bit, it makes an OG profile. Well, if you get an OG molding plane, it makes an OG profile, and that's all it makes. They are quite a bit more difficult to sharpen, um, but they typically tend to be the next step after hollows and rounds. You know, when, when you've kind of mastered the hollows and rounds, you kind of want to look and say, oh, well, you know, what can these complex molding planes do? They're real pretty, um, and a lot of times they're, they're bought on impulse when you see them on eBay or see them in an antique shop because they look at that pretty profile on the bottom of the plane. If you're looking for complex molding planes, I would say start with something like a side bead plane. A side bead is a really useful profile for furniture makers, and it's also a profile that's somewhat difficult to make with hollows and rounds because you need another plane to make the side bead if you're uh, making it with hollows and rounds. If you look at the profile of a side bead, it has what's called a quirk. The quirk is that little space between the bead and the flat part of the board. Well, a hollow and a, a hollow plane from a set of hollows and rounds can't get into that space to make that quirk. So instead, what you need is a plane called a snipes bill, and they're also usually sold in a, in a pair, a left one and a right one, just like hollows and rounds. And the snipes bill plane, if you just Google it, you'll find plenty of images of it. They are designed to make that quirk. So if you want to make a side bead um, using hollows and rounds, you would need not just a hollow plane, but you would also need a, a snipes bill plane as well. 
So side beads are, are a good choice for a first complex molding plane because they're a very useful profile. They're also fairly easy to tune in terms of complex molders. Complex molders can be kind of a pain in the butt, but side beads are one of the easier ones to tune. They can be a little bit finicky um, to get them tuned right because sometimes they'll leave a little flat on the side and you don't want a flat. You want a full um, semi-circle bead when the profile is done. Um, but they're one of the easier complex molding planes to tune and sharpen. Uh, I would also suggest sticking to smaller profiles for complex molding planes. Again, going back to what I said earlier, most furniture moldings are fairly small. Most complex molding planes that you see sold on eBay and antique shops are going to be too big for most furniture. Most of those complex molding planes that you see were designed more for architectural millwork. They're used by joiners who are making baseboard, who are making crown molding, who are making window casing, who are making wainscoting. Those, those are the planes that you find most often when you look at complex molding planes on eBay and in antique stores. It's not too often that you find furniture-sized molding planes. Um, but when you do, they are valuable tools to add to your collection. Um, but again, you want to stick with those smaller profiles. Think about the size of the molding that you're going to put on a piece of furniture. You're not looking for a molding that's two inches wide. You're looking for a fairly small molding um, that's going on a piece of furniture. So stay away from, from the large architectural profiles and, and look more for the smaller profiles, even with your side beads. Uh, eighth inch, three sixteenths, quarter of an inch, uh, is probably about the max that you're going to use for furniture. If you're building a dining room table, maybe you might go as high as 5 sixteenths or 3 eighths of an inch side bead. Um, but for most furniture, again, the dining room table at 3 eighths of an inch bead is probably about as big as you're going to go for furniture. Any bead bigger than 3 eighths of an inch is more, uh, probably most likely for architectural work. And what you're going to notice is those are the planes that are usually in the best shape on eBay that are the large ones because they saw the least amount of, of use. The small ones that were used for furniture, they're usually the ones that are all worn out. Again, as the profile gets wider or more complex with these complex molding planes, they get harder to push, especially as the, the plane gets wider and the blade gets wider and it starts to take off more wood. Um, and they also get harder to sharpen. So keep that in mind with complex molding planes, you know, when you're looking at the sizes of these things. And then the other thing to keep in mind with a complex molding plane is that most of them, other than the side beads, require you to hold the plane at an angle. They have an angle scribed on the end grain of the plane body known as the spring angle. That's the angle that the plane needs to be held at while you're using it in order to create the profile that the plane cuts. So... Unlike hollows and rounds, where you can change the angle that you hold the plane in order to get that plane to cut the profile that you want, or unlike side beads that are held straight up and down to make that bead profile, most complex molding planes have a spring angle, and that spring angle is going to be different from one plane to the next, and it's based on the maker of the plane. It's also based on the profile of the plane because the spring angle is there to minimize the amount of scraping that the plane does and maximize the amount of slicing that it does. So, um, you know, that's something else to keep in mind and get used to as you're learning to use complex molding planes is to keep an eye on that spring angle. 
Um, other than that, you know, again, I suggest starting with the hollows and rounds and, uh, don't forget to go over and visit Matt's website and read his FAQ and his blog, because there's a ton of great information on there all about using hollows and rounds to make a huge variety of different moldings. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. And as a reminder, please, please, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because the show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Record a voice note, voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com or leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. And you can also use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt017. In the show notes, you can find links that I refer to in today's show. You can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do these in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.